Let's pray. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. It's basically just help. All right. So let me let me pray that for us. Well, our great God, we're um, conscious that we're coming to a massive topic tonight, and uh, we pray, please, for your help, that you might help me speak what's true, but you might work amongst us tonight to help us hear, uh, listen, and learn uh, what is true about you, what is true about us, that please, we might relate to you properly. Help us in this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you uh, right up the outset about a thing called confirmation bias, confirmation bias. Now, I know uh, what we're being kind of promoting tonight to be about is actually about can bad people go to heaven? Um, And uh, I want to get there. But because that topic is so profound and so deep and so countercultural, I want to start by talking about confirmation bias because confirmation bias shapes all that we do in all of this area. Do you know what confirmation bias is? Confirmation, yes, thank you. Confirmation bias, (laughs) that's good. Participation is great, just not me. But anyway, uh, confirmation bias is, um, is that thing where you've got an already predisposed disposition towards a conclusion. I'm thinking, I want this to be true. And you find the information that confirms you're right and ignore the information that conf- would say you're wrong. So you're, you're biased towards only seeing that information that helps you believe this and you're biased towards rejecting any information that might stop you believing it's confirmation bias it biases you to the way you look at the information now let me give you an example i'll illustrate this a couple of ways uh kathy and me kathy and i go surfing uh, at least once a week we try and go together uh, down to the beach and uh, and have a surf and when when we arrive at the beach we do the surf check thing you know what you do and you look out on the ocean and this thing happens almost all the time kathy looks out on the waves and says it's awesome let's get out there and, and I go, you've got to be joking. The wind's on shore, it's choppy, it's closing out, there's no one out. And she says, no, 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 see that wave there, that's awesome. And I go, it's just one wave, there's 50 waves of rubbish. And so we have this discussion, which is really warm, romantic and loving, right? But um, <laughs> we, we have this discussion. Now, here's the thing, what's happening in that? What's going on? What's going on for Kathy? Confirmation bias. What's going on for me? Complete objectivity. <laughs> you, you, you see, Kathy wants to get out there. She's actually, I've married a Grom. She, I mean, she's older, but she's still like a 15-year-old kid who just wants to get out there and surf whatever it is. And I've, I just want to go out when it's good, right? But anyway, she's, she, I've married a Grom. And so she wants to get in the water, and she'll find a reason to think it's good and discard all the other stuff. Whereas, as I say, I'm completely objective. But... Um, Now, I knew you'd laugh when I said I'm completely objective because you all know that I'm not objective either. I bring my bias. I just want to lie on the beach now. I don't want to go out in rubbish, so I'll find the reasons why it's rubbish. That's confirmation bias. Now, we do it in all kinds of ways. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Australia Day. Now, I'm I'm tempted to ask, but I'm not going to ask, who wants to change the... Don't say anything, actually. Who wants to change the date of Australia Day? That kind of thing tends to... um, who wants to change it and who wants to keep it the same tends to operate according to an age. Depending on the education system you grew up in, it'll shape your bias towards whether you want to change the date, you think it's an important thing to change the date or not change the date. And so you'll look for the evidences, why this is a terrible thing to have, or the evidences, if you're older, why it's a great thing to have. And you have this terrible conversation where people don't hear each other because they're all just using the information they want to support their position and reject the other position. Barbie movie. Let me give you another quick illustration. If you went to the Barbie movie already wanting it to be awesome, you dismissed the fact that it was actually a terrible movie. And you 
you just didn't pay attention to the fact that it actually made no sense and it was all kind of weird and strange. But you looked at the incredible message there and you're going, this is awesome. But if you went to the movie going, uh, this is going to be dreadful and so on, you ignored the fact that it actually had a really profound and deep message and it was really worthwhile going to. Did you hear me, women? That's what I just noticed. I, I, I thought it was not a bad movie. But um, I thought it wasn't a great movie, but I had a great message. And um, see, confirmation bias shapes the way you do what you do and how you operate. You with me? Now, this topic is almost completely at the mercy of confirmation bias. And I'm talking quickly because I've got a lot to get through. Um, How do you get to heaven? How do you get to heaven? Who gets there and who doesn't? That's a hugely important question still. Now, you might have picked up from kind of the media and the celebrities and so on that there is no such thing as heaven and we all just ought to get over it and what have you. And you might be thinking, I'm a very small group of people who believes it. No, 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 no. Research was done a couple of years ago in Australia and uh, what they found was that uh, 48% of Australians are sure that there's life after death and another 28, almost 38%, are not sure but are pretty sure. Almost 80% of Australians think there is life after death. They're almost sure there's life after death. So if you're sitting there thinking, I believe in a life after death, you're in a massive majority of people who think that. Only 4% don't believe it at all. A very tiny minority. Now, here's the deal too. That 80%, you're on a good thing. Because when you look at the historical evidences of the death and then resurrection of Jesus, you have in history rock-solid evidence that there's something beyond. Now, I'm not going to go through that tonight, but if you come along to our live series, you'll hear all about that kind of stuff, the evidences for it and so on. Um, so people still have very firm views on the possibility, of their, the fact that there's something beyond this life. And they also have very firm views on who gets there, who gets into heaven, paradise, nirvana or whatever it is, and who gets condemned. You go to a funeral of a young mum. A tragic funeral. And almost every single person there will be totally convinced that she is in a better place. Almost everybody. Now, if you were to press someone, it's not appropriate to do this in the context, of course, if someone's grieving, but if you were to press someone and say, what makes you think she's in a better place? Almost everybody would say one of two things. Because she was a good person or because she wasn't a bad person. So some people say because she's a good person, she's morally good, she does great things, or she wasn't a bad person. That's the kind of more realist person who realises we're not per- none of us are perfect. But the assumption operating here is only the bad people, the really bad people, go to hell. The rest of us, as long as you're decent, good and moral and upright and so on, basically trying, you'll go to heaven. That's the popular thinking around our country and around the Western world, around the world actually, I think. It's almost a universal conception. We are sure that if there is a heaven, and 78, a massive proportion thinks there is, then everyone will be there except the bad. Everyone will be there, it's only the truly bad who won't be there. Now here's the thing tonight. I'm going to be as blunt as I can be. And we need to be blunt about this topic because of confirmation bias. I'm going to be as blunt as I can be and just tell it to you straight tonight. That thinking, that popular thinking is absolutely wrong. It's completely wrong. It's dangerously wrong. It has consequences that are horrific for our society. 
That's why our sign out the front uh, has it the way it has, uh, the sign that says uh, bad people can go to heaven. Now, if we'd, we, we threw around some thoughts about what we... To make it even more bald, to make it more straightforward, we could have said it's only bad people who go to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven. To make clear that we are saying the Bible teaches something profoundly different to popular thinking. Now I say all of this as frankly and as boldly as I can because of confirmation bias. When, I, when, when churches down through 2,000 years have been teaching about how you get to heaven, um, those ones that have been teaching the Bible just keep getting misheard. People hear what the Bible says and go, oh yeah, so good people go to heaven. No, <laughs> that's not what the Bible's saying. This popular thinking is wrong and it's not just me, it's the words of Jesus himself that we're going to look at tonight and see that he thinks it's, it's wrong. And, and why are we looking at Jesus? Well, because Jesus, in, in our estimation, is, is not just a, a human, he's not just a man, um, he's not just a great man, he's actually the son of God, he's God himself come in the flesh to reveal to us the truth about who God is so that in him we can know uniquely of all people what God is actually like and so that's why we're looking and again that might be for you tonight uh, a piece of news you hadn't heard before come along to the life series it'll help you actually look at the evidences and see if it's true or not what I want to do is show you tonight a place where Jesus speaks to this topic where he compares popular thinking with the truth and again I warn you it's it's shocking it's counter to everything our community thinks. It's countercultural. So what's the story? It's Luke chapter 18. Grab your Bible, turn up there. I hope you've got your Bible with you. Keep trying to bring that along. It's a great help. If you haven't got it, listen in, of course, because I'll go through it and read it to us. But Luke chapter 18, verse 9 and 10. Pick it up there in verse 10. We'll come back to verse 9 in a moment. Verse 10, he talks about two men who go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So that's the simple story. It's not a true story. He's making it up, but he's using it to make a point. Two men go up to the temple to pray into the presence of God, let's say. Now, this building is not a temple. It's just a building. It's not like the ancient world where and so on. this is just a building. right? But they go up to the temple to pray. Now, there's a couple of bits of information you need to have in your mind before we go through this story to make sense of the story. The first is this. This is about how to get in heaven and how to make it with God, even though the word heaven is not used. Now, how do I know that's the case? Well, it's there in verse 14. You see where Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. That's the word, justified. Now, what does the word justified mean? Because to get a handle on this will help you understand the whole point. The word justified is a legal term in the ancient world. Um, we use it in kind of different ways today. But in the first century, the word justified came out of the courtroom where a judge would be presiding over a case and uh, um, an accused person would be brought before them. The evidence would all be heard and he would come to one of two conclusions, either to condemn the man, guilty, go to jail, or to declare him justified. No case to answer for, free to go. Now that declaration justified doesn't mean that he's a good man. It just means as far as the court's concerned, he has no case to answer for, he's free to go. He, he, he's, he's regarded as, counted as if, he is innocent. 
justified. That's the important thing. And what Jesus is talking about here, he's asking the question, which of these two men, when they front up before the heavenly court, where God is the judge, which of these two men will be counted by God as justified? Free to come into heaven. And which one will be condemned? You see, that's the nature of the story. He's talking about heaven and hell, without using, but using the word justification. Second, the other thing that's a bit of background here for us, the two men are not as they seem. So he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I dare say, most of us, when we hear the, language, the, the word Pharisee, immediately have a concept in mind of what he's talking about, who he's talking about. And the problem is that that's shaped by 2,000 years of Christian history where the Pharisees have been beaten and battered for 2,000 years. So we immediately, when we hear the word, word Pharisee, think bad man, evil. And when we hear the word tax collector, the phrase tax collector, we really kind of end up thinking, um, well, you know, a misunderstood, hard-working public servant. And I want to just flip that and help you see that's not what's meant in the first century. When Jesus talks about a Pharisee, He's not talking about an arrogant religious snob, as the community would see them. He's talking about someone who was a good man. The Pharisees uh, were not paid religious teachers. And so, in, the, in a sense, they were completely independent. They weren't caught up in the whole prosperity thing of church life, if you like. They were independent. And so, they were just very keen volunteers who were really fair dinkum, Australia Day, fair dinkum, about their faithful religious experience. They were often impressive people, they were reliable, if they, if they said they'd do something they would do it, they'd work hard. Um, if you hear the word Pharisee, we're meant to think, now I'm interested to see how this works for you, we're meant to think Mother Teresa. Now I'm a bit, how many people, hands up if you know of Mother, heard of Mother Teresa? Okay, there you are, still, still very well known. Mother Teresa was a, a Catholic um, uh, uh, um, uh, a woman who operated in the Catholic... A nun, that's the word I was after. <laughs> uh, she, she was a nun who, um, who operated in the slums in India, working with poor people uh, to help them, very sacrificial. And, and for many years now, she's, she's been dead for some years, but for many years we regarded her as the, the kind of quintessential, the... the the ideal human who was the best you could be, Mother Teresa. Well, think, when you hear Pharisee, think Mother Teresa. A really good, moral, servant person. You with me? Now, the tax collector. When you hear tax collectors these days, as I say, you, you, uh, you think of someone just trying to earn their living, working hard in an office somewhere, collecting tax. You don't like taxes, but nonetheless, he's just... No, no, no. When you, think, when you hear tax collector, what you're meant to think of is a standover man. An extortionist, a bully and a traitor. A, a tax collector in the ancient world wasn't sitting in an office sort of doing spreadsheets and sending out emails, right? A tax collector in the ancient world was a, a Jew employed by the oppressive powers of the Romans to collect money from his own countrymen to help the Romans oppress the Jews. He was a traitor. And he wasn't in an office somewhere. What he was doing was he'd be required by the Romans to collect a certain amount of tax. But he was free and the Romans were happy for him to collect as much as he liked. If he can collect more than that, go for it. It was his. So tax collectors would go around their Jewish 
um, fellow uh, uh, Israelites and, ta- and make them get as, much money, get as much money off them as he could. Extort, bully, pressure and line his own pocket. We are talking, if you know your history, Second World War, uh, the Jews who were sent to the concentration camps. Um, we're talking about Jewish sympathiser with the Nazi party to help facilitate his own, her own countrymen being sent to the gas chambers. This is bad. He is as bad as you get. Now that's important to hear so that you emotionally react to the story as we're meant to react it because these two men go up to the temple to pray. They come before God, if you like, in the temple. And Jesus asked the question, which of these two goes home justified? Which is accepted by God? Which one goes to heaven? The answer, verse 14, the tax collector, not Mother Teresa. Not the person doing public service and trying to be the best they can and doing as much good work as they... Not that person. The tax collector. He says, that's the one who goes home justified before God. Wow. Now, the crowd in the ancient world, no no doubt, would have been shocked. And for us today, who are brought up in popular thinking, are you telling me that Jesus is saying the person who works hard to be good and not kill anyone and be a great mum, a great dad, and just be a beautiful person and be as nice, you're saying that one goes to hell? While someone who betrays their own people, a bad, evil, that goes to heaven? Yes. That's what he's saying. Well, you've got to then ask the question, what is going on here? That he could talk like this. Well, what's going on? That's what I want to spend the rest of the time explaining. What's going on? The difference between the two is where they look for their hope. One looks inside of themselves for their hope and the other one looks outside of themselves for their hope. One is an inside hope man, woman. The other is an outside hope woman, man. Now, that may not explain it to you. You might find yourself, well, that doesn't help so much. Well, let me explain what I mean by those terms. Look at the prayer of the first man. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now just skip the first part there, verse 11, and jump to verse 12. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. What he's saying is, um, uh, before you, God, I've done all these great things. And I'm able to pray to you and expect you to answer me. And I'm able to stand in the temple and pray like this. Because when I look inside of me, I see a pretty good person. Not perfect. Pharisees didn't think they were perfect. But I see a good man who is going over and above, doing lots of wonderful public service stuff, religious stuff, church three times a day. I'm a good man. And so what he does is he looks inside of himself And he sees himself as a good person, or at the very least, not as bad as the worst people. That's why verse 11 is there as well. Not as bad as murderers, adulterers, uh, evildoers, tax collectors. But not perfect, but but a good man. And he stands before God in the temple and he believes that he'll be in heaven because of what's inside of him, how his heart is before God. I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying hard. 
Now, you imagine this man at a funeral, the funeral of that young mum I mentioned earlier, and people ask him, where do you think she will be on the last day before God? And he says she's going to be okay, she'll be in heaven. Why? Because she was a good person, or at least not as bad as other people. Now, this this Pharisee represents in the story popular thinking about heaven, how you get to heaven. It's the classic vast majority view in our population. It's the person who thinks that they will be okay before God because of what's inside them, how they've lived their life, how good they've been, or how at least not really bad they've been. Now, this man is a particularly extreme version of that because Jesus um, helpfully adds that verse 11 where he critiques others around him. And, And I think what Jesus is doing is helping us see that when you're an inside hope person, you end up becoming inherently judgmental of others. See, if, if I think that my hope before God is based on how well I'm living my life, or at least the fact that I'm not as bad as the worst person, what ends up happening is I need to actually see that people are worse than me, and so I need to notice and point out that they're worse than me. Inherent in, inherent in being an inside hope person is judgmentalism and competitiveness. Just to give the technical terms to it, if you're a works-based person, if you're a legalist, you'll become judgmental. And that's because uh, you need to be better than others to make it. There's that old joke, I don't know if this helps you, but I always think of this joke for some reason, but an old joke about a bear in um, North America. Um, two, two men were hiking through the forests of North America and an aggressive bear turns to start to run and chase them. Very dangerous thing. But one of the men, before uh, they both head off to get away from this bear, bends down to tie up his shoelaces on his running shoes. And the other man says, what are you doing tying your shoelaces up? You can't outrun a bear. And he says, I don't need to outrun the bear. All I need to do is outrun you. So so great. I thought it was a much better joke than that. But anyway... (laughs) Um, I'm using that to illustrate a very serious thing. And the serious thing is this. If your philosophy of getting to heaven is based on being good, based on being moral, doing the best you can, if it's based on all of that, then what matters to you is that you're at least not the worst. And so you'll become inherently judgmental of others. Now, you might think, you said, no, I'm not, I'm very gracious to it. No, no, if we hung out with you for a couple of weeks, we'd find the group that you were judgmental of. It'll be Trump and those who vote for him. You'll be going, gee, I'm glad I'm not like them, those people, those deplorables. Or, depending on the family you've been raised in, it'll be those progressive woke people, I'm glad I'm not like them. There'll be a group that you go, I'm glad I'm not like them. It'll be judgmentalism that will shape your life. There's another, there's another word for this, another phrase for this. It's called self-righteousness. Now, as soon as I use that phrase, you go, ooh, yeah, yuck. So I've avoided it to now. But what Jesus is pointing to is the inside hope person, the person whose hope is based on their self-righteousness, which means you become self-righteous. And Jesus speaks this story, verse 9, to speak to exactly those people who rely on their own righteousness. 
Now notice this. Jesus says that that self-righteous person, that inside hope person, that person who's relying on being better than others, not the worst that they could be, that person, he says, notice this, notice this, does not make it, does not go to heaven, is lost. Notice it. Now, I'm trying to be as blunt as I can because confirmation bias kicks in at this point and we say, no, that cannot be. Surely someone who's not terrible, who's just a decent person, will be okay. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If they're an inside hope person, if they're hoping for their right standing with God based on their morality, their life, their goodness, that they're not too bad, they have no hope. They are self-righteous people. Now, let me apply this to us just for a moment. The Pharisee was a very good person. Better than morally, better than any of us. His self-righteousness was ugly, but Jesus is just making explicit the thing that's in all of us who are inside hope people. You will end up becoming self-righteous. You know, churches used to be full of self-righteous people. It was a particular problem for church people. But now it's self-righteousness is everywhere. It's in all the community. Because you have been raised, we have been raised to think that your worth is all based on something inside you. Your worth is based on you being special, you having something wonderful. And so our whole culture is teaching you to base your worth on what's inside you. Now that's to raise a whole other question for us. But we are prone as a society to be self-righteous to be inside a hope people. Now, I want to suggest to you that this becomes even more obviously a problem when you compare it to the alternative. Let me take you now to the second man, the one who has an outside hope. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So just notice a couple of things here. The tax collector stood at a distance. When he came into the temple, he wouldn't even come near the front because he didn't feel... He sat at the back, which is just to say anyone sitting at the back of church is going to heaven and those at the front are going to hell. Just to, no, no. He, 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 he sat at the back. And look at this too. He says he would not even look up to heaven. He couldn't look up to God. Now just think with me, what's going on for this man that he couldn't even come near the front? He couldn't look up to heaven. What's going on for him in his heart? Shame. He's full of shame about his life. Then he prays. He beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now what is that prayer? It's a prayer that says... When this tax collector looks inside, what he sees is sin, corruption, fallenness, evil, darkness. And he realises that if God looks on the inside, he has no hope at all. He is completely different to the Pharisee who, when he looks on the inside, says, that's pretty good. God should be... When the tax collector looks in, he goes, i got nothing. I've got no hope. But he prays. What does he pray? He prays, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now think with me, where's he looking for his hope? 
He's looking outside of himself. To where? To a thing that God might do. To a character that God might have. That God's character might be merciful. And that God might act mercifully towards him. He realised his only hope was outside of himself, not in his heart. His only hope is what God was like and how God might be towards him. Now dig here a little bit further. Do you see what this means? This man realised that he was at God's mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. He is at God's mercy. Now that word mercy is important here. If you're asking someone for mercy, you're aware that you are not owed what you're asking them to do. If I ask someone to be merciful towards me, what I've come to the point of realising is that the thing I'm asking them to do is something that I'm not owed from them, that they don't have to do, that they're not obligated to do, that they don't must do for me. And if they don't do it, then they've done the right thing. When I ask someone to be merciful towards me, I've realised that I've got no claim upon them, that if they give the mercy to me, it's completely their kindness and generosity, nothing I deserve. Now this is massive, massive to get hold of this. This man has come to realise that he is entirely at the mercy of God's choice to either show mercy or not. He has come to the point of handing over authority of his life and its future to God. My future's in your hands, God, and my hope is only if you act mercifully towards me. He has come to the point of realising that he is utterly helpless. There's nothing that he can claim. There's no thing that he can make God do. He, he can't expect and demand anything of God. He's entirely at the mercy of God. And it's not until you come to this point of realising you are helpless that you've actually not seen the truth of what's in your heart. One of the evidences that you truly see the guilt of your own heart is that you realise you deserve punishment before God. You know, a small thing happened to me uh, two weeks ago. I was visiting someone in church and, um, and as I was driving there, I rang them and said, look, I'm on my way. And they said, uh, there's no parking near us. You'll have to just park up this street on a green patch of grass there. And so I said, sure. I pulled into uh, the street they were in and turned into the parking area where there was a green, stopped on the green pack of park, patch of grass in front of a house, got out and spent a couple, came back to the car and there was a parking fine on it. And you know what went through my mind? I, I, um, parking fine. I thought, how dare they? Yeah. And then I thought, how dare my friend for telling me to park here? And then I looked up and I saw five foot in front of the car was a post with a red sign saying no stopping. Five foot behind the car was a sign that said no stopping. Both red, both very clear, and I realised I was an idiot. The problem was not my friend. He probably told me he meant a different patch of grass, not that patch of grass. So I realised then, that I've got nothing. I can't write to them and say, I'm sorry, I should, I didn't, you didn't put the signs, you didn't make it clear, it was not my fault. I, I realised I completely blinded. So I just paid the fine straight away because I knew I had nothing. Friends, until you realise how guilty you are, you won't realise you're helpless. 
And notice that what's going on here is not just before the parking police, it's before God. It's before the God of the universe. This man has faced the fact that before the holy God of the universe, he he is entirely worthy of condemnation. And if there's any hope of heaven, it's only because God might not do what he ought to do that he might choose to do an astonishing thing and forgive the thing that he ought not forgive. He has come to the point of owning deeply that he is at the mercy of God. Now, this is is the massive point of difference between those, the Pharisee and the tax, the massive difference between the two. The Pharisee, when he looks on the inside, he says, I'll be okay. And the consequence of that is that he thinks God owes him. And the thought that God might not receive him into heaven would be a shock and would be a sense of of angst and hostility that how dare you not receive me? You see, when you're an inside hope person, you end up thinking that God is at your beck and call, is under your obligation. He must do what you command him to do. Have me into heaven. How dare you not? How dare you not have that young woman into heaven? But what's going on there is that inside hope people think she's got a great heart too and she should be right and God should have you see what's going on we've got God at our mercy no whereas the tax collector has come to the point of realizing that he has got nothing when he looks within he's left with nothing he knows he's owed only condemnation and rejection if he gets anything else it's the free gift of God who chooses freely whether he'll be generous or not Now, behind all of this is that it's only the tax collector who is living in light of reality and the truth. Because the difference ultimately between the two is not whether one's good and one's bad. The difference between the two is somewhere else because neither of them is good. They're both bad before God. The difference is that one man faced the truth that he is bad and the other refused to face that truth. Do do, do you see, um, uh, there might be a difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector of, you you, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, the tax collector might be better than the Pharisee, but it's only, you know, 0.6 versus 0.4. God is 10. Actually, he's 100. And the difference from God's perspective of the difference between us is just, is nothing. We are all sinners, says the Bible. There's no one righteous, not even one. The tax collector has shown that by his pride, his arrogance, his self-righteousness. There is no one righteous. One was humbled by God, the other was too proud to look at himself honestly. And so the difference between the two in the end was whether there was pride or humility. Pride to keep thinking I'm better than I am. Humility to face the truth of who I am before God. Now for us, you know, this goes in a number of directions. Um, which, of, which of the two made it into heaven? The tax collector. The one who was bad. But they were both bad. It's the one who realised he was. And so humbled himself. You know, Mother Teresa, the quintessential good person, the kind of classic 
person you think of who's the best of humanity. People who knew her wrote books and she was every bit a sinner. She, she wasn't the way the media presented her. She was just like you and me, full of pride, full of sin, not worthy of right standing before God based on looking inside her heart either. There's no one righteous. You know, if you look inside and think you will be okay, it's confirmation bias going on. It's because you want to believe that about yourself. You want it to be true. And so you'll be selective about the evidence. You'll, you'll say, no, I am a good person because look at this. And I'll say, but what about these things? Oh, that's not really me. They were just slip-ups. And so you, you'll be biased towards only seeing the things that confirm what you want to confirm. Because here's the deal, you've got confirmation bias operating because you don't want to face the shame that you really are a sinner. And you don't want to be at the mercy of anyone. You don't want to be in a position where someone else is in control of your destiny. You don't want to be at their mercy. Pride. You don't want to have someone else determining your future. And so we fight the thought that we're all tax collectors, that none are worthy. Which is why, and here's another thing for us, which is why all of this tonight has moved out of the realm of arbitrary religious claims. Let me explain what I mean. I think one of the things we do is we look on the world of religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islamic religion and so on, and we go, they're all about religious rules and laws and if you try and be good you'd be okay and we think Christianity is another one of that and so in our kind of superior 21st western secular thinking we we go well they're all just trying to say be good and decent in different ways they've got their way they've got their way I'm just going to be good in my way and God will be happy but here's Christianity Christianity steps in Jesus steps into that and says I'm not saying any of that I'm not saying it's a new rule. I'm saying it's got nothing to do with rules. I'm saying something that no other religion's ever said. I'm saying that what matters is not whether you're good or bad, moral or immoral. What matters is whether you face the truth of who you are and the truth of who God is and you respond to him as you ought, which is to be humble before him, broken Realising your only hope is him and his mercy. That's what Jesus comes telling us, which is entirely different from any other religion, which confirms for me that we're in touch with the truth here. This is really God speaking. Every other religion is man making it up. Jesus, the Bible, the Christian faith is saying something totally different from popular thinking. It's saying that the thing that makes it possible for you to be able to stand on the last day and go to heaven has nothing to do with your merit. It has nothing to do with what's inside you. In fact, when you look inside you, whatever religion, whatever culture, we are all lost. The thing that makes us able to stand before God, the holy God of the universe, is something outside of us. Our only hope is in Him. That He might be merciful. Which is a terrifying thought. My whole eternity hangs on whether God will be merciful to a sinner. What if he says no? What if he runs out of patience with me? I'm lost. 
And here's the place I want you to arrive at tonight. I want you to sit there tonight and feel the weight of that. That before God, we are entirely at His mercy and we are not good people at His mercy, we are bad people, sinners at His... I want you to feel that because that's the truth. Have the humility to see it. And yet, and yet, is there hope? Here's the beauty, glory and greatness of the Christian message, unique of all the religions, that the God who says your only hope is my mercy comes into the world in the person of his son Jesus and says, I've come to show you mercy because my very heart is love. I'm the God of mercy. I delight to show mercy. And in fact, I delight so much to show mercy that I've come in the person of Jesus to die on a cross to pay for your sin, to pay for your guilt, that if you just look to me in humility, like the tax collector did, I will, I will lift you up and make you a member of the family. If you come to your senses, like the prodigal son came to you and said, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son, then God the Father says, that's what I was waiting for. That you might live with reality, the reality of who you are and who I am, that your only hope is me, and as soon as you... Humble yourself, I'll exalt you. As soon as you come to me like a little child, giving over to me all authority, I'll lift you up. Because that's what I love to do. The message of the Bible is that God is merciful, He's gracious, it's His very being. If you would only let go of your pride and your self-righteousness and throw yourself on His mercy and have an outside hope, look to Him for your hope. He will lift you up. Have you done that? Have you done that? Now, this is massive. I don't mean have you just thrown out a prayer, be merciful. I mean have you come before God with the honesty to see yourself and go, I've got nothing, God, I've got no hope. Would you be merciful to me, please? Have you done that? Have you truly come to Him aware that your only hope is his grace, kindness, mercy and forgiveness. If you have, it'll change you. If you have come with that kind of tax collector, you won't leave the building as a tax collector. You'll leave the building wanting to change because you'll be so in awe of the grace and kindness of God who has forgiven you and given you what you don't just You want to now to please him all the rest of your day. You want to live for him. That's what genuinely saved people end up like. And the sense in which if church is just a superficial thing, a thing that you bounce in and out of, it's, it's almost certainly because you've not appreciated how at the mercy of God you are and how gracious he has been to you, what he's done for you in Christ. Because as soon as you see that, everything changes, your life changes. You can't live for yourself anymore. You need to live for him who died for us. Friends, bad people go to heaven. Only, the only people in heaven are bad people because there are only bad people. The ones that are there though are the bad people who realise that, who are humble enough to see I'm not worthy and so who humble themselves before God and then are exalted. 
This is why the Christian message is the best news you've never heard. Because we almost can't hear it. It's just so counter. But when you hear it, you go, this is astonishing. You mean God never gets impatient with me? Yes. Because he delights to show mercy to the worst. And it means if you're here tonight and you've got, you know how bad you are, you know all the worst things, you look in your heart and you go, Whoa, that's, if anyone knew in this place, they wouldn't have me. No, 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 God will have you. And one of the beautiful things about church here is that we are full of tax collectors, ex-tax collectors, who have been transformed and changed. place is full of them. And if you're one of them, if you're coming tonight going, I'm not worthy to be in this place, you're in good company, none of us feel it. And our hope is always only external to us in the God who is gracious. Now tonight I'm actually going to give you an opportunity to pray the very prayer that this tax collector prayed. If you've not prayed it before, I want you to pray it with me tonight. And the prayer, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is pray it phrase by phrase and just pause that you can pray it in your own mind. And I'm going to ask you in a moment just to bow your heads because we're not worthy to look up. At, we're going to bow our heads before this holy God. And what I'm going to pray is this. I'm going to say, uh, Lord God, I realise that I'm not worthy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please forgive me. Let me now live differently, seeking to please you. That's the prayer. And if you want to pray that tonight, tonight's the night to pray it. It'll be a fantastic... If you pray that prayer amongst us tonight and mean it, you can know that you go home tonight justified, right with God. Isn't that... That'd be the best night of your life. Let me pray. Bow our heads. We're not even worthy to look up to heaven. Dear God, I realise I'm not worthy of you. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please forgive me. Please help me now live with you at the centre of my life. Please help me live seeking to please you who have been so gracious to me. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you prayed that prayer tonight, then it is the best night of your life. You are justified before God, without any merit of your own. You don't have to perform. You've come to the God who is so gracious. He receives even tax collectors. Wonderful. We're going to sing. What are we going to sing? Because it better be good. Do you want to tell you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, you guys are awesome. We're going to sing Rock of Rages, which is a song that will help you reflect deeply on these things. You chose that yourselves. Which one? He's very good.